So last night about this time there were the red trucks and flashing lights and I ended up kind of swept into the situation as I was getting ready to jump on the ambulance. Um, one of my colleagues I actually was so kind of focused on other things that I can't remember which one of you said, is it your turn to give the talk? And I was like, damn. <laughs> I could have gotten out of it. <laughs> but today, as I was going through it, my mind found the perfect excuse for if there's anything problematic about this one. I didn't get as much sleep as I should have last night. So, And it, there was still like some other things in my moving through my mind as I was normally would have gathered would have been gathering to compose. It didn't. Um, so you're going to get what you're going to get, <laughs> which is always true. Um, but what arose in the first sitting of the day, well, the 8.30 sitting was um, realizing that today is the equinox. It started at 4.20 this morning and a very great Persian holiday we were talking about with Nikki here. Um, It's the first day of spring for us in the Northern Hemisphere. And it's, I like that it's a major, major holiday for the Persian culture, acknowledging just the ancient rhythms of the earth and our human ability to understand and celebrate our place within those rhythms. A sense of celebrating natural time So I feel like that's also what our practice is, too, to find the natural movements that are under all the overlays of enmity and insane political hatreds and all that stuff that beings feel joy when it's spring. I have a Tibetan goddaughter, and I got an email from her mom today who said it wrote... She wrote, the spring has came to our island. Flowers are blooming everywhere. Your goddaughter enjoys to crawl on the meadow. Mm -hmm. It's so pleasant to take her out to play. Just that sense if we are connected with what's happening, this sense of joy and healing of what's asleep within ourselves can occur. The breath goes in and out. And I think we all know that through the insanity of the war in our minds, we're cultivating a deep, deep quality of sanity here. Sanity, health, all the words saint and holy and healing are related, I think, in what we're doing. Also, this being the equinox, the day and night are equal today and another time in the fall. So it made me think about a talk about equanimity, about developing balance amidst all of what arises, what seems like the good, the bad, and the ugly that comes up. When you use the word composting once, that everything is actually a natural arising. The trees in the forest that are sick and dying and the little flowers that are coming up And really, we're trying to address all of that in this container, in this awareness practice. So today, in the equality and balance of night and day, the gates of tears for some and the gates of joy for others, wherever each of us is hovering between our birth and our death in this moment of precious life, won't be repeated, maybe ever in any other universe. We don't know if the infinite ocean of time is so great that maybe we'll all meet again exactly in this moment and I'll find myself saying this again and I won't even be tired of it. (laughs) Hopefully neither will you. (laughs) Also in Persian culture, this holiday lasts until the end of our retreat. Um, So when the Easter bunny comes and lays his eggs on the lawn... (laughs) So our awareness as it grows also grows day by day as we apply the practice. Like I've noticed that the dawn is like three minutes earlier or something like that each day. The day's getting longer minute by minute. 
and our practice deeper also in its own way in a sense that the way it deepens is really unforeseeable and natural and different for each one of us taking its own time. In the texts, awareness or mindfulness or consciousness is always spoken of as a form of light or illumination. And I think if you notice the way that the mind knows, you can see why the comparison would be there. That knowing, being able to see, is like when the light comes and you can see. That what knows the body through the body and sound through sound, it's not only through our eyes that there's a kind of awareness or light. Awakening also, the word bud means dawn. So here we are, dawning. In the holiday, there's a Persian altar that has seven things on it, mostly connected to life and spring and renewal. When I was looking at an image of this table, this festive table that gets built, my, my I went to the mirror that's a part of it always. So I brought a mirror in here um, for everyone to look at. And I kind of think it's better than a Buddha statue in some ways. Like the Buddha didn't really want statues made because he didn't want people focusing on some thing outside of themselves. So when you see a Buddha statue, you should really see a mirror instead. The mirror is reflection and self-knowledge. But also I'd like to talk about some of the qualities of equanimity and loving awareness as being like the mirror. For example, loving awareness and equanimity, something beautiful can appear, something ugly can appear, and the mirror isn't disturbed by what passes through it. The images don't stay caught there either. And it's really a metaphor for the deepest kind of equanimity and balance in practice that the things that happened this morning are gone and we sort of know that. And the things that are here aren't really stuck, they're moving. And we can know that at the time. At the age of 10, I watched Grandma brush and pin up her long salt and pepper hair. Grandma, I said, you could look 20 years younger if you just dye your hair. (laughs) Why would I want to look younger, she asked, sounding truly curious. She didn't know. Everyone wants to look 20 years younger, I said. I was sure of this because of TV. (laughs) She kindly told me that 20 years earlier she hadn't had the experiences that she'd had by now. Why would I want to look like a less interesting person? Twenty years later, an oddly colored strand appeared by my ear. I tugged it loose and showed it to my good friend. It looks like it's full of air, I said. She asked how I felt about it. Fine, I said, a little surprised to feel the truth of it. I've been looking forward to this day since I was ten years old. It's written by someone named Andrea who lives in Costa Rica. One time with my Tibetan teacher, we did a practice with a mirror. I think I told one of you about it in our meeting that we were had to get in front of a mirror and get like dressed up and put on really nice clothes and look at ourselves and say like wow you know you actually are not bad looking you're pretty you look good you know you have all these achievements and you just bring to mind all your good stuff and feel the liking of it and look at yourself and feel like wow and then you were supposed to like get up without brushing your teeth and <laughs> look at all the other don't comb your hair and look at yourself in other state and see all the stuff that you didn't like about yourself and just feel it as an experience and sort of an experiential fullness and acknowledge in a sense that it's only just an experience and they come and go. So all the selves and identities that we've had since the beginning of this retreat, like the one who's got it all together and the one who's falling apart and all of that, the mirror of mind already is taking care of all of those things. Like we haven't been, we feel stuck sometimes but that's not really the reality. I wanted to talk a little in the beginning about, um, this probably could end up with a sequel, this talk it's looking like, about how equanimity and fragility need to coexist. So this is in the realm of the Brahma Vihara style of the loving heart 
side of equanimity, the heart that uh, loves all beings as equal. So we've seen that a little in ourselves here, how much strength it takes to be vulnerable in the practice and the ability to reconcile with different aspects of our experience, uh, whether gradually or slowly, or just knowing that we're beginning to be able to, or being able to reconcile with not being able to reconcile. That's another one. But this kind of what we take to be our faults and our failings, very essential parts of us, and maybe part of what makes us beautiful, I would like to argue. At lunch, I was having a chat with James Barras, who kind of reached out to me. We've been rolling around the same circles for decades and never had a like one-on-one conversation yet. We were talking about writing, and he said, putting my heart on the page is so satisfying. I wonder how come I never feel like doing it. <laughs> how come huh I learned this thing about equanimity and fragility which I think is so important for us from uh, a one of those Krista Tippett weekend programs on national public radio she was talking with the French geophysicist Javier Javier Le Pichon And he had a kind of enlightening experience when he was feeding a child in Calcutta who was actually dying anyway and feeling that looking into that child's eyes and sensing the intense vulnerability and being able to love that child was important for himself being fully human, how it's important. So he wrote a... Well, actually, he now lives with numerous people with disabilities in his house um, as part of his own practice path of being fully human and touching the vulnerability that we all share. He wrote a paper about how one of the oldest human skeletons is in Shani Dar 1, it's called, and it's 100,000 years old, found in Iraq. And it was a person who lived to the age of 40 who was so... uh, Their bones were so badly formed that they could never have lived or walked on their own. And the idea that such a being would survive meant that they had to be taken care of by all the others. Calling that something that the beginning of like what could be really called a human society. As soon as the seemingly foolish choice is made, everything must be reorganized around that person who suffers the one who is wounded and handicapped. It's the only way that person becomes cared for by everyone. Something completely new is created this way. I feel that also when I visit my mother-in-law in her rehab hospital. To I can either look at how really screwed up people are and all the things that they face toward the end of their life. And that's very poignant But I also look at the amount of care, like this entire building that's dedicated to caring for such people. Le Pichon goes on and says that, contrarily to what is often assumed, the weak and imperfect parts of the genetic code are often those that allow evolution to occur. It's true because it's based on the occurrence of coding errors during the duplication of genetic information. So it says um, these society not based only on production but also based on that kind of tenderness and care for every individual in it makes people happier, more optimistic. So we've had lots of talks about how to feel this in our heart and sort of reorganize ourselves around the loving awareness of what's vulnerable or what's open in us what isn't perfect and complete, and sometimes feel like that's a a wind, like a space through which freedom can blow. This heart of mindfulness, the non-judgmental attention that we bring 
to the times when we feel great and the times when we don't feel so great and the times when, you know, like, you feel like you've done something so well. I went swimming the other day with some of us co-teachers and I was swimming and I felt like that, first the happiness of the body, feeling itself as a whole and remembering like the little swimming lessons I took when I was a kid and feeling like I did a flip turn at the end and it was just like being a little kid. Like, wow, I touched it and my feet went right on the cross of the wall and kind of like being um, in that sense of fullness of being as well as at the time when there's something that we have to work with that we just don't have any strategy for. All of it can dissolve in the mirror, take form in the mirror again. The part of the work that we're doing here is not necessarily for outward. This equanimity that we bring to every moment that we're living here as much as we can, this loving, you know, all all loving could be or just seeing without judging or putting up or down any of it. This inner work is something that only we can do for ourselves. Like we can be with someone and be a witness to your joy or your pain as teachers, but we can't necessarily go right in there. Just as I know in myself that no one can go to certain places in me where something might be needed, some kind of softening or some kind of warmth is needed, like some kind of ligament that has things stuck together that I have to sort of warm it up. No one else really knows where it is to release that bondage. So there's a part of this that's really very intimate that has to be done. I think there's no other way than doing it here. There's not really a pill for it yet, um, despite Winnie's... mischief that we heard of. I guess, actually, that's not something we've shared with you. (laughs) Uh Uh-oh, off the rails, here we go. (laughs) That was a, it was a yogi mind moment of Winnie's, not any activity that she's actually done. I have to tell you this. (laughs) What? (laughs) Shut up. (laughs) Okay. So equanimity is, as a quality, is something that appears just like energy on almost all of the famous lists of Buddhism, it can be seen as a um, Brahma-vihara or a part of loving-kindness practice, the place where loving-kindness culminates in saying that each of us faces our own karma, like I can love you so fully, and yet there are places in which I can't intervene. Um, Each person has to face their own karma, their own situation. Equanimity just leaves that, but doesn't diminish the love, so it's love and wisdom in equilibrium. It's also the last of the seven factors of enlightenment. Uh, The paramis, or transcendent virtues. Equanimity begins to emerge in the jhanas, or these stages of concentration, particularly the fourth jhana, where sort of rapture and contentment die down, and you just feel a quality of real peacefulness in the mind. It's there in the um, progress of insight, phases of kind of stages, different kinds of perceptions that form in uh, different phases of practice. At the time when you see that things are dissolving, but then something else kind of seems to appear again, like things not only have no form, but then they sort of take form again. So things are all coming and going rapidly, not only just going. It's the middle path also, equanimity between sort of the solstice, night and day. Buddha's, some people will call it the Buddha's most important teaching. It was the first teaching he actually gave to his five companions after they stopped sort of, quote-unquote, beating themselves up by not eating and thinking that they could achieve liberation by just thwarting their own desires or their own, you know, bodily needs by eating just one grain of rice every day or um, sitting on rocks or whatever. At some point, he felt this was a finite endeavor, and he decided uh, he accepted some rice from a woman. Um, They were horrified. (laughs) And, you know, he felt a little better after he ate something. (laughs) So he wasn't doing it all with his mind. It was actually acknowledging, like, the real nature of his physical life. And after he felt a little better, he remembered like a simple kind of happiness that he'd felt when he was a very young child. 
lying in the shade under a bush while his father was um, inaugurating a spring, actually a spring plowing festival. He remembers the sense of kind of contentment sort of within himself that he'd felt uh, maybe as a, I don't know, I imagine a couple years old or something. I can't remember if it's really in the texts or not how old he was. But he went back to that sense of kind of being in and with himself in an easy way. And it was from there that he started to look into his own experience as the path that we're here now. So then when he went back to, after he spent his time in practice, however long it was, and had developed deep liberation, he went back and told his friends about this. It was like he took the ground from under them, like it's not really um, the way of self-indulgence that he'd practiced when he was young and saw the futility of that, like that wealth and privilege and a great education can't necessarily make you deeply happy, can't take care of all of it. But self, you know, mortification doesn't either. So the middle way, he took the ground out from under them. And it's what we practice too in like not getting kind of completely absorbed into our delusions, but not repressing them either. And for some funny reason, this native awareness that we have when it's cultivated strongly provides the place where we can stand to be able to do that to be with our experience, but not fight with it. Like a mirror, maybe, but not flat, not cold, not glass. After his liberation, the Buddha walked around India for a long time, teaching, trying to transmit and help people to understand that they couldn't be happy by just trying to corral happy feelings all into one corner. Something we might have noticed here that we have them and then they sort of move along. And it's necessary to be able to be content or something with everything or what we get. He also did some protests, tried to stop a war between uh, actually members of his family who were fighting over irrigation rights. Wasn't able to stop the war the third time Like twice he stopped one half of the family from invading the other half, and then the third time it didn't work out, and they did have a war, and it wasn't very good, which actually led to a whole bunch of widows coming to him and asking to be nuns. And when he said yes, it seems, at least according to some accounts, he lost some favor in society, like he was letting all these women be kind of a massive number of women into his movement, and it sort of wasn't well viewed. So there were a lot of vicissitudes going on in his life. It's not like... His liberation made him surrounded by some kind of golden halo where everything was like so peachy from then on. He was living very much in his times with what went on in his times. There's even a possibility that he died of being poisoned. And yet, what would it mean to have a mind that isn't stained by those outer events that kind of does its best and then lets go of outcome? The second noble truth is that, that you do your best, not insisting on an outcome. Again, that's what we do here. We put our sort of effort as best we can. And then the outcome, we hope, takes care of itself. It seems to be working on most of you, we've noticed. Except except for, no, I'm just kidding. (laughs) Sorry. (laughs) I can't help it sometimes, (laughs) y'all. The good thing is that um, within the spirit of equanimity, nobody has to be the perfect student since you also don't have the perfect teachers here. So you're just, we're all perfect in being as we are, letting things be as they are. Like that's actually the spirit of it and how healing it really is on an internal deep level, letting the tension dissolve, the tension of craving and rejecting and the amount of work it takes to try to tailor and cut things, cut to fit. We were talking this morning about the neutral feeling time, which in a certain way is like the poor man's equanimity. Moments when the phenomena feel neither painful nor pleasant, and we just feel like we hardly even remember that we're in a retreat, like walking up the hill or something like that. It's important not to be disappointed in the ordinariness that arises at times. 
And even in those kind of like dry times when you sort of feel like not another step and not another breath, like it's just so dull sometimes. If you're able to or willing to kind of soften into how you feel, I had probably one of my more early significant moments of, you know, just deep opening on a moment of boredom. I was just bored and then I looked at the bored mind state and it's just like it sort of went away into this great ecstatic space and I thought, when I become a teacher, I'm going to read the yellow pages to everyone and they'll get enlightened. <laughs> that was the next thought my mind produced. <laughs> like, I was thought I saw myself already like enlightening others based on this. Um, I then quickly realized it wouldn't probably work. <laughs> it's funny to see like how you have like some great moment and then the freedom of being to sort of immediately cover it up again. Like you sort of like, wow, this is so great. And then all of a sudden, like being itself just obscures itself because it can playfully puts you back where you were before and all your strategies to get this back or hold on to it absolutely don't work. You really do have to surrender. I'm remembering um, when we were at Insight Meditation Society, kind of young yogis all together, there was a legend, I don't know if this is really real or just a folk tale, that there was someone who, when they would get really bored in their practice, would remember, I don't know if you've heard the legend of the turtle that's swimming through all the six oceans, that it's so rare to become a human being. It's as if there's one turtle swimming through all the oceans of the world and that for it to come up for air with its head through one lifesaver that's floating also on the oceans of the world, that it's random taking a breath, that's your human life or our human life. So this person, when they would get bored in the practice, would blow up a little thing and go in the bath to fill up the bathtub and stick their head up, <laughs> trying to stick their head up to create a little more interest in their practice. <laughs> Couldn't it be true, or am I just making it up? I don't know. Here's this uh, cartoon about a therapist, a uh, couple's therapist, sitting before this. These two people are there, this married couple, are consulting her, and she has all her diplomas on the wall and stuff. And she's saying to them, maybe you ought to consider making love in the morning before you have a chance to piss each other off. (laughs) 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 Strategies for creating interest (laughs) when you're bored. (laughs) Or here's another one, just to liven up this part of the talk. Another friend of mine used to, when she would get really miserable in her practice, she would lie on the floor and pretend she was dead. And then she'd say, everything looks better after that. <laughs> Too much equanimity isn't good. <laughs> but the the thing for those ordinary moments I think is when you can sort of realize that we're not really going anywhere. It, it seems like those moments are the teacher for that. Like there's no one we need to become, there's nothing that we're gonna get. Uh, to have, hold on to, no one to be, to rest back into that when you feel like nothing in particular, nothing so much is happening. Back to the mirror, the sense that the mirror is a kind of a truth-telling thing, like our awareness is, can be accurate, can see things just as they are. There's a Zen Enlightenment poem, poem that goes, I used my true heart to face the full moon, Who knew the moon would be looking at a sewer? (laughs) It's the equanimity of not needing to have a better experience than the one you're having. I remember listening to other people's Dharma interviews in Burma, standing in line and hearing people talk about what was going on for them. It was really hard sometimes to like stick with where I was or what I had to report. And one of the things I learned over time is that sometimes what sounds better supposedly isn't better and you know there's no first of all there's no actual better but there are times when the mind is full of turmoil and the teachers are happy like that this is coming up for you that sort of those inner structures are falling apart and you're really seeing a lot inside yourself if you would be willing to learn or see it like with an open heart it's great So I'd have to stand my ground and sort of honor being where I was in the there and then or the here and now, touching whatever my experience was just as it was. I did learn sometimes to adjust things so that 
I knew that I would be offering kind of what the teachers could hear. There was that effort of saying like needing to know what they could work with or how they saw things so as to make an actual sort of connection with where they were not and not to put myself down like I remember Sayada Upandita asking me in Hawaii like how many hours did you sit and walk so I like subtracted all the times I went to the bathroom and stuff like that and I ended up with a very small amount and then I realized he was horrified I was like four hours and 16 and a half minutes or something of this and that. And um, I learned that it's better if you just kind of give an average. <laughs> you don't have to, like you didn't have to like sub- subtract every like moment of mindlessness from your practice. <laughs> it was a perfectionistic mind at that time, like the little calculator mind that was getting in my way. I remember also at my um, height of, spiritual striving one time I decided I would do part of my retreat in my room only in my room and I would pee in this little almond butter jar thing and because I thought it would be like really good to not kind of be doing very much because someone else was sitting in their room so I was going to sit in my room too and I found myself picking some lint off my socks at different times I'd be like wow okay but at least no one can see (laughs) what I'm doing in here and then at night I would be in my room and I'd hear all the little hooves going down to the Dharma talk and then the building would get really empty and really quiet and I'd just be in there by myself. So after a few days of this, like maybe not very many days, I started to go down and listen to the Dharma talk from the outside. Also, so no one could really see that I needed to hear it and I'd run away before they came out. <laughs> you know. <laughs> And at some point, there was this person who had sort of been adopted by the meditation center who was hanging around. No one quite knew what he was doing there. And he was really quite out of it. He wasn't a meditator or anything. He was just someone who, somebody's cousin or something who was staying there. And he used to wear these big black shoes and white socks everywhere and clomp around. He never knew, he wasn't like subtle enough to see the cues of taking his shoes off at all. So I'd be sitting in there and pretty soon this guy would come in clonk, clonk, clonk through the walking room where you're supposed to have your shoes off. And he and I would sit there listening to the talks together and I thought oh you know what it's kind of nice out here but maybe I'll just start to go in and listen to the talks with everybody else like there was this sort of like okay I'm just going to go in and there was something of equanimity in that as well like it's okay it's okay how you do it it's okay doing it wrong it's okay to be silly that I felt which is a quality that was actually new for me at the time like I've you can see how I was holding myself to a really high high perfectionistic standard and thinking that that was going to get me some kind of special experience there was some interesting things that happened but um, the settling into just kind of natural being natural was worth the whole exercise So this equanimity means, this mirror-like equanimity is like a non-violent approach to what goes on in your mind. And it's there in the third foundation of mindfulness where the Buddha says, when you know your vast, your mind is vast, you know a vast mind to be vast, and you know a contracted mind to be contracted, and that's it. I still like to read that thing because it gives me such a sense of coolness, like to just to see what your mind is doing so peaceful, you, nothing further is required. My husband, in joking about himself, likes to say that he's a medical miracle because he survived every known disease that's happened in his mind. <laughs> he's had them all. We also like to talk about how there's a popcorn emergency in our house when it gets down below a certain amount. And he goes, ah, crisis. This morning, that talk, when it was starting to arise in my mind at 8.30, it was really like this glorious thing where it would be like, you know, the fingers of Dharma would come through and like touch the strings of every heart and they would resound without even knowing they'd been touched and stuff like that. It was like going like this and then all celestially creative and no pen and also have to sit here quietly and not start going (laughs) in front of everyone. So I sat there. Uh, wishing I could all write it down. But that was when the mirror thing came, so that was good. But most of the brilliant transitions I was going to make had disappeared by about 11 (laughs) o'clock. So it is what it is. And just how, if we can be somehow patient and present with ourselves, we 
start to see that we can trust our mind a little bit. My friend Ji Hong Sunim is studying a shamanic thing, a shamanic thing. She's a Buddhist nun, but she's also a shaman, and so she has rocks and a rattle, and she like does little visionary trips into other people's bodies and stuff with her visionary mind. And I asked her if she was ever tempted or to use plant substances along with it, and she said, no, I just trust my mind. It's so beautiful. I trust my mind to go wherever it needs to go. So can we trust our minds to actually respond to the instructions and respond to the practice without us needing to do it, without us needing to pull the flower petals open or pull them off? Since what seems to emerge from the practice isn't by our will, it's actually so unforeseen for all of us. Trudy and I have a mutual friend who um, lives with, also with HIV in Hawaii, and he was trying to decide on a certain course of treatment, he said, and he felt he would just allow his heart to decide. He actually calls it the majesty of your heart, so... I was trying to make a decision myself, and he said, the majesty of your heart will decide for you. So it's sort of like trusting the time cycle of the equinox and the solstice and the long days and the short nights and like that, that wisdom will emerge in its own time. I do it sitting in the interviews or the meetings with you guys as well, like to just say whatever emerges is right. I sometimes remember to say that. So another thing about the mirror is it's equal, equal with the good and bad, equal with the pain and the pleasure. It also doesn't cling or hang on to things that are passing through. Does the mirror get busy as it's reflecting stuff that happens? Is the mirror actually working? It's not fighting, but is it also working? Hatsui Shizue, a Japanese woman poet, says, Silently, time passes. The only life I have submits to its power. I know that some of you, and we know in the questions and the meetings, that you've sensed this non-self nature of what's happening, that we're not really in control, that we can be there and be part of it and sort of participate, but we don't always get to pick. We have some influence and some choice when our mindfulness allows the sort of wholesome, healthy wisdom factors to operate and tell us that we're tired and we need to go to bed or tell us that we're wakeful or we could sit. Sort of there's some capacity of amplified choice toward what leads to well-being. But this kind of deeper process nature of our experience is not something that uh, we are in control of. The aggregate of perception seems to try to fix things into place and put order into things and slow them down a little bit for us and make them intelligible and workable. It seems to try so hard to make things seem like they used to be or something familiar. And Pascal talked about that when he saw the kangaroo outside. We get caught in this place of relying on perception as if it were going to provide some kind of solid basis, like... Haven't many of us heard that we'd rather be right than uh, something, I don't know, rather be dead than be wrong, maybe something like that. (laughs) How important that feels to us to kind of have a stable base in the alignment of our thinking and our world. Recently I got pretty excited by reading sort of that the Big Bang Theory is really kind of a mess. Like, do you know that 96% of the matter in the universe is supposed to be dark matter, meaning that it's some kind of strange particle that doesn't interact with anything else. Therefore, it's never been discovered. So it probably doesn't really exist, but they needed to invent this idea of dark matter and dark energy in order to account for all the other theories about how gravity works and why the universe is sort of sticking together slightly as it's also flying apart. So... 96% of the universe is speculation on the part of astrophysicists. (laughs) It's a a kludge (laughs) that makes everything else work. It's like an assumption they had to do to correct the other assumptions. But 
Nobody's found these particles yet because they don't interact with us anyway, so they're moving through this room at a giant rate of speed. Nobody knows. <laughs> Sayara Utejaniya talks about the aggregate of perception in really interesting ways, like really bringing it into awareness as you know, a place where we kind of fixate a little bit and also get out of process, get out of surrendering to process, not seeing the perception as part of the process. And also how faulty it often is or how partial it is, the way we think our day will go, um, what we expect for breakfast, how much we want to eat, you know, all those things about size and duration and calendars that I find so befuddling. There was a woman at Sayadaw Utejaniya's monastery who was doing walking meditation and there was a bunch of bananas on the table and she just like 3D-ized the banana bunch in her head and decided how many there would be on the other side. So then she walked around the table and she saw that there was a little small banana that she hadn't accounted for in her mental image and it was actually a moment of real deep understanding for her about sort of the relationship of mind with reality. One of the biggest Buddhist, Tibetan Buddhist compassion prayers is, talks about how amidst the bewildering net of perceptions, the sheer variety of perceptions, how we get enmeshed in them and take reality for real. Instead of seeing that we're always kind of swimming in this experiential quality of life, that there's never been anything that was not an experience for us and how much that experienced-ness softens everything. They say it's, it's as if there's not really a moon out there. It's as if all of our life is like a moon being reflected in the water, kind of moving slightly, not solid. So I don't know if that makes sense to you all in a sort of kinesthetic way that we're sort of a three-dimensional experience going on, like a Leela-ness or John-ness or Pascal-ness, um, but not a real Pascal. No real Pascal is there. <laughs> There's a thing in the Majjhima Nikaya Sutra about Elder Nandaka, who, for some reason or other, I always like these little off outtakes in the suttas. Like, it was his turn to go and talk to the nuns, and he didn't feel like it. He just said, I don't want to go talk to them. <laughs> and the Buddha said, you have to, man. So the Elder Nandaka went to town and he went begging around for his alms and he sat down and ate his lunch and then he went after he'd done all the stuff that he felt like doing and um, he's asked them sisters this talk is in the form of questions is that okay and they said okay and then he asked them the questions so he actually I think it was actually interesting maybe he didn't maybe it wasn't really about him not wanting to talk to the women but maybe he didn't feel like doing what I'm doing is like being like the wise one, but he started asking them, how do you see life? Like, how do you see impermanence? Like, do you see it in yourselves? Um, is it really fit for clinging, this moving around kind of life that we all lead? He said something very beautiful, and I think I've, since I've talked quite a bit already, I'm not going to talk much longer after this, though there's still tons here. He said, sisters, suppose an oil lamp is burning of course, all these analogies are really about ourself. So suppose this oil lamp is burning. The oil is impermanent and subject to change. The wick is impermanent and subject to change. The flame is impermanent and subject to change. And the radiance also is impermanent and subject to change. So while this oil lamp is burning, the oil, wick, and flame are impermanent. And who would say that its radiance is permanent and everlasting? So beautiful and subtle about what exactly is this radiance that we feel when our mind and body are all working together. And maybe that too, this kind of resonance or hum that happens when we, all of our factors and aggregates are together, this luminosity or whatever it is that we're in, um, also isn't something to be grasped onto, isn't something that can be held. And it's really in the moment of letting go of it being any other way that we discover freedom. It's not like freedom is out there or a place or a state or anything. It's actually, it's available, but it doesn't exist, if that makes sense. 
Pascal was talking about the five rivers and John talked about the 12 um, links of dependent origination and we also talk a great deal about the momentariness of experience like feeling the components of a step or the movements of the hand and noticing each thing in its kind of micro slice of time which makes it in a certain way easier to start to see that flickering quality and to let go into experience. Trudy, I know, read a very beautiful thing today in the compassion meditation, which I also wrote down, but I may not have to repeat it. Oh, you know, if I go on about, can I go on about seven more minutes and I'll get to the end of what I started? Okay, yeah. So not being the one who's right or wrong and not being the perceiver, not being the one who suffers heat and cold, not identifying with as the sort of creator of our experience or also not identifying with intention, not being the doer of our actions. Just have an invitation to look into all those places and see if you don't need to build anything on top of them. You can allow them to be seen in the mirror of your mind for what they are as a kind of qualities of experience. I have a friend uh, who lives in South India in a community of Advaitins, non-dual practitioners, and they're really into this idea of non-doership. And he says it really makes him, he's getting fat as a result of all his (laughs) non-doership. It makes it hard for him to get up and start an exercise program. (laughs) So you don't have to go, stay in the middle way with that one too. (laughs) The, The Buddha said, Therefore, bhikkhus, any kind of body whatsoever, past, future, or present, should be seen as it is with proper wisdom. Thus, this is not mine, this I am not, this is not myself. It goes through all the parts of experience and says that it's not something I can cling to. I feel, for me, the sense of everything arising in experience makes that a lot easier to kind of sense into. He says this is how to become invincible, is to see things this way as they are. So, sort of surrendering all that can be surrendered often will lead you to knowing what can't be taken away from us. Down to consciousness, which I said, I think, in one other talk when I was a little bit less calm and less able to bring it forth, is consciousness seems to be like where we build the idea that there's a spectator watching all of this. Like there's someone in here who's the observer. I wonder what it would be like to just have there be like it happening. How does that feel to allow everything to be happening in a kind of a space where everything actually is already happening like that, no core. Something very alive and dynamic occurring in the stillness. So investigate that. As it says in the Lojong practice, investigate the nature of unborn awareness. Where do our thoughts go when they're gone? They're not all, I don't think they're all being stored somewhere under the meditation hall. I hope not anyway. (laughs) Where do they come out of? And when they're here, where are they actually staying? Is your mind inside your head? Is it? Where is it exactly? And I have a story here. I'm the sort of person who can spend an hour in a place and not notice a single detail. This shortcoming is especially evident when I visit my mother, who loves to decorate. Every time I enter her home, where there's some change, there's some change, new drapes, a new chair, a painting in a different spot. Notice anything different, she asks, and I'll scan the room, trying to recollect what it looked like before. He goes on talking about um, different ways that he lapses in attention. Then he decides that he's really going to start paying attention. This morning in the coffee shop, I got my order from the counter and sat down. I have breakfast there at least once a week, but I realized I had no idea what the place really looked like. How was it decorated? Who was sitting at the tables nearby? What music was piped in? I made myself stop and look around. A woman at the table across from me was focused intently on her friend's words. At another table, a young man with a day's growth of stubble was bent over his laptop. I took another bite of my half-finished breakfast and tasted it really for the first time. 
Then I realized I'd picked up someone else's order. <laughs> the other day, I was, this was kind of like a divine apparition. I was walking through this like humble square near my house, and there's like all these kind of funky stores in there. There was a T-shirt that said, "My mind wanders. Sometimes it disappears entirely." <laughs> so even that, even that can also happen. It's no need to even hold so so tightly, white knuckle the practice that you have to kind of know things or even know them more deeply. I like to open up and let sort of the now happen through you. See what, see what takes place in that kind of open space where you're engaged or participating, but you're not in control. You're just letting it kind of the live mirror sort of thing. No mirror. It's like when we were sitting before this talk, I was listening to the frogs, and it just seemed so elegant how they make the silence evident also. They make the frogs and the stillness are connected. The stillness wouldn't be as beautiful without those frogs. So Rumi wrote, You think you know what time it is? It's time to pray. You've carved so many little figurines, too many. Don't knock on any random door like a beggar. Reach your long hands out to another door beyond where you go out on the street, the street where everyone says, How are you? And no one says, How aren't you? So thank you for your kind attention. Sit and be with the frogs or whatever for a minute. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.